Okay, well the first thing to say to everybody is welcome. Uh, welcome to Guy House for this uh, all to what I consider to be brief retreat, um, which is just a couple of days as you know. We'll be exploring the theme of friendliness and kindness over this weekend and I'll say more about that. As you all know, the retreat is held in silence and the silence is a way of beginning to really focus and intensify the experience of the practice, which I'll introduce properly tomorrow morning. But it's important to hold that silence because the silence is the receptacle in many ways for the holding of the retreat, uh, for you to derive the maximum amount of benefit and to actually not be caught up in all of the usual things that we're often caught up in in everyday life. We have a very good habit in ordinary life of distracting ourselves, um, particularly from things which are difficult, things which sometimes can be distressing or just, just really hard to get on with. We distract ourselves. In fact, in many ways we can say we're amusing ourselves to death a lot of the time. We're just trying to fill up space by amusing ourselves and distracting ourselves. The one thing you will notice on arriving at Guy House is a lot of that's not there. All of that usual distraction, the medias, you know, the radio, the television, the newspapers, the hi-fi, everything we usually use isn't here. And the silence is, in a sense, there to support and aid this practice. Um, this practice which is an exploration as much as anything else. We're beginning to explore a territory and for many of us, often quite an unknown territory called us. Yeah, this is often quite an unknown territory in the sense of we, we're conscious of some aspects of our lives and some aspects of our experience. But we never really get that close to it. We never move in close and really see what's going on. In longer retreats, I often say, well, if, you know, you're probably familiar that you know, in forms, some forms of Buddhism, they use things called mantras. Um, well, here's a mantra for just this weekend, one I usually say, actually, for long retreats as well. What on earth is going on here? You know, that's the mantra to have. In other words, to invigorate and generate um, a sense of inquiry, a sense of friendliness and generosity towards yourself. And I'll be saying much, much more about that later. So it's important that we preserve the silence and hold the silence over this all-too-brief period, as I say. Something else that's also part of the container, the holding mechanism of a retreat such as this, is a traditional basic Buddhist, Buddhist formulation, which is known as five precepts. These are things which are actually what's considered in the Buddhist tradition to be rules of training, ways of training ourselves, the basic level, if you like, of um, a moral ethical approach to life. And we ask you to hold these five precepts while you're here, and they're very important, and they also can be tools for inquiry into your own ethical, moral life, not just within the retreat situation, but when you move outside into ordinary life. Um, there are very simple basic rules, lots of familiarity with ethical codes in humanist and religious systems. Um, but what we ask you to hold are these five basic precepts. Now, the full formulation, as we find it um, within 
you know, for example, traditional Buddhism, is that we undertake a rule of training. So these are not absolutes, but they are ways of training ourselves in a certain attitude towards life. And the first attitude that we're generating is one of harmlessness. So the rule of training here is I undertake a rule of training to refraining to refrain from harming any living being. You know, from from the bug uh, to ourselves. I'll say much, much more about that as we go through. Because what this precept is meant to generate within you is a way of beginning to examine our attitudes of harmfulness in life. How we do harm, how we engage in um, sometimes forms of harm and generate forms of harm which are not necessarily directly intentional but are an outcome of a particular mindset that we bring often to our lives. So often you'll see these in popular books on Buddhism, and this is why I'm giving the full versions of them, you'll find them translated as basically don't kill. Well, it's kind of really taken quite down quite a lot, because obviously when we say to refrain from harming any living being, is it obviously implies not killing, but it doesn't just mean that. It means to examine all of our relationships of harm. Now, as you well know, the title of this course is about the heart of mindfulness, of which I'll go and say a little bit more. And that heart of mindfulness is a friendliness, a lack of harmfulness, a movement into much more of a gentle kindliness towards ourselves and towards others. And so this first precept is really to get us to look at our relationships of harm. The second precept is to undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered. Again, popular books, you'll see this translated as simply as don't steal. Well, as you can see, it implies a lot more than that. And this was the Buddha's intention when he generated these basic moral precepts was to get us to inquire. This path has never been one of simple lip service and subservience to a set of rules, but really more to something to stimulate inquiry. And so when we have this rule of training, to refrain from taking what is not offered, then it's looking at the relationship again of where we take things that are not freely given to us. You know, and we can think of all those little you know, incidents possibly you know, in the workplace where we you know, take something, paper clips, paper, telephone calls, whatever it might be, and we engage, in a sense, in the violation of this precept. So again, it's to make you look at your relationship with taking what is not freely offered to you. The third precept, a very important one, again, it shows a lot about the Western mind, the way this one usually gets translated. Um, it's usually translated as it don't engage in sexual misconduct. Well, actually, the full precept goes to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. Um, as I was saying to a group quite, here quite recently, um, when I was teaching uh, a slightly longer retreat than this, um, sometimes, you know, for example, when we come on retreat, Because there are no other distractions, one particular sensory indulgence becomes extremely important. It's called food. (laughs) 
In fact, so much so, uh, sometimes I think that rather than a meditation retreat, it's an eating retreat interrupted by meditations. <laughs> you know, so basically look at your food intake. Yeah, I see people staggering with groaning plates of food and wonder how they can ever stay awake in the afternoon uh, with the amount. This is what's meant by sensory indulgence um, or you know, sensory stimulation. And obviously in ordinary life there are so many different ways of stimulating ourselves sensorily. You know, there's all of those distractions that I spoke about, all of the things that we have of taking ourselves, our minds out uh, from actually what is going on for ourselves. Now, there's, sometimes there's no harm in that. A lot of the time it's merely escaping. So we're looking here in this precept simply at sensory and sexual misconduct. Now, the sexual is, in a sense, it's coming out of the sensual because obviously sexuality is part of our sensory lives. And so it's asking us to look at that, to look at the ways that we engage in sensory misconduct, overindulgence, overstimulation, and how sometimes that can even move into our sexual lives as well. So it's really about holding this precept. The fourth precept is also a very interesting one. This is one that's usually translated as don't lie. Um, it actually, again, is much more interesting in the original formulation, which is... I undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Sometimes this gets extended. Now, this is interesting because I'm asking you to, um, in a sense, adhere to this precept, but I'm also saying, please don't talk, because it's held in silence. Now, the one thing we can't stop ourselves from is talking. Uh, have you noticed that? Even when we're in silence, we're constantly talking. You're constantly talking to yourself about others, often, about ourselves, telling ourselves stories, being engaged in uh, the invention of fictions a lot of the time, not really paying attention to how things are unfolding, but much, much more concerned about this fictive element of experience which is there within our, if you like, within our constant dialogue that we have within, including the relationship we take towards ourselves. Because some of the things and attitudes that we take towards ourselves, the positions we take, literally we could say they're simply not true. They're simply not true. Um, it was Mark Twain who once uh, remarked that his life had been full of the most terrible misfortunes, most of which had never happened. <laughs> yeah. These are the stories that we get involved in. These are the inventions that we create for ourselves. The stories that we say about the person sitting opposite, opposite as in, the, in the refectory. Uh, the stories that we you know, tell ourselves about the person who is a little bit fidgety on their cushion. You know, these are inventions. These are stories that we're telling ourselves. And it's really asking us to look at the veracity of these stories. So it's not just about, obviously in ordinary life it is, but it's not just about external speech. Now sometimes, um, in a sort of eight-precept version of this, this gets moved, moved into extending it, actually, into not just engaging in, not engaging in false speech, but not to engage in harsh speech, not to engage in divisive speech, and not to engage in chatter. Is there anything left to say? Is there really anything left to say? 
you know, if we actually cut out most of that within our lives, there would be, you know, quite sort of minimalist conversations, I think, here. So it's really looking at our speech acts. Obviously not here because it's on a silent retreat, but actually looking at our speech acts that are going on within our own heads. The final precept is one which is actually to undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking substances which cloud the mind. There's many different ways of translating it, but it basically it's asking you not to engage apart from prescription drugs in drug taking or alcohol or any of this sort of thing. Now, one thing I always like to say about this is the Buddha didn't put this in as a kind of last clause simply because he was a killjoy. Um, the whole purpose of this process that we're engaging in, which we generally call meditation, but which is actually more within this tradition, a cultivation of mind, then if we are engaging in a certain cultivation of mind which is aiming towards clarity and incisiveness, um, then it's really saying, in taking substances which cloud the mind, isn't that going against the main direction of the path? Isn't it going against the general trajectory of what the practice itself is aiming at? Uh, which is, as I say, is this clarity, this incisiveness of mind. Um, also friendliness. Now, one other way of looking at this is also is that and sometimes I list this actually on a board if I have a whiteboard here, and I list all the precepts one you know, above the other. And when we get to the final one, is under the influence of the final one, you're more likely to commit all of the above. <laughs> you know, this is generally you know, what happens. Um, so it's much easier to fall into those. And so this precept really is one is about guarding the clarity of the mind. And this is really what it's about. So these are the these are the containers, the silence and the precepts of the way of holding this retreat. Okay, the retreat itself. Now, as you will see, um, if you, I don't know if they've gone up on the laser board yet, but uh, you will see that basically what it is, is it's um, a weekend of sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, with a Dharma talk thrown in, or a talk in the evening. So we engage in a lot of what I call meditative practice, although it's not a word I'm terribly keen on. We engage in a lot of meditative practice. Um, the walking meditation, which I'll say more about tomorrow morning, is not to be seen as something which is breaking up the sitting meditations. It's to be seen as as important as the sitting meditations themselves. As I say, I'll say much more about that in the morning when I introduce the walking meditation. The general theme, as you well know, is the theme of friendliness. Now, let's just talk a little bit about this this evening. Friendliness. Rather than, as again, it's often translated, loving-kindness. What the Buddha is really encouraging us to engage in is acts of friendliness towards ourselves and towards others. He talks about this, the word in the original language, or the language which was, you know, has come down to us is the way the Buddhist, earliest, earliest Buddhist texts have been preserved. The language of Pali, this is called metta. This term metta doesn't really mean anything to do with love. 
In fact, I think the Buddha would have thought that was rather a tall order, that we could love everybody. Much, much more pragmatically, though, he says that we can engage in acts of friendliness towards others and towards ourselves. And this is particularly important, the direction the directing of this friendliness towards ourselves. This is the basic act. This is why I've called this weekend, this particular retreat, the heart of mindfulness. Now, many of you will know that mindfulness has kind of become, when I say popular, um, it's started to spring up. It started to become part of mainstream society. So much so, as many of you will know, it's being used in, for example, the treatment of depressive relapse and being used in schools and many, many other places as well, and in the workplace. However, mindfulness isn't simply a technique, and I think it becomes rather sterile if it's reduced to simply a technique. What the Buddha was really trying to get us to engage in, and to really see very, very clearly, that the act of engaging what I would call in mindfully conducting one's life was also an act of friendliness. That these were not two separate things. All too often, and this is very true even of the Buddhist traditions, all too often, mindfulness has been, uh, sorry, kindness or friendliness has been the poor relation in terms of the way that people have been encouraged to practice. Mindfulness practices have generally aimed at what is usually translated as wisdom, panya. The direction, the trajectory of the practice was to gain wisdom or insight into the nature of things. However, when you look at the early texts, when you start to really begin to examine the nature of the Buddha's teaching, he was also saying that the very act of friendliness, the very act of kindness itself was also going to lead to insight. It was also going to lead to a different way of being and seeing the world. In many ways, what we could say is that there are not two things. There is not metta and there is not mindfulness. There is not friendliness and there is not mindfulness. Mindfulness is friendliness, and friendliness is a mindfulness. In one of the very ancient texts, the most famous text, which is called the Metta Sutta, the Karanya Metta Sutta, which is the part of the discourses of the Buddha, the Buddha actually says, when talking about friendliness, that there is no greater mindfulness here. There is no better way of living in this world than through this act. Now that's quite a powerful statement. I don't know if if you realise it, and and I appreciate that probably many of you are very tired coming from your places of work and journey, so I'm not going to make this too torturous this evening. But if you just contemplate that for a second, as the, the kind life, the friendly life, is also a mindful life. Something which changes our whole way of being in this world. In many senses, friendliness is not just a state of mind, it's a way of being in the world. 
It's a way of directing or inclining our mind in a way which is, in a sense, taking us away from habitualized patterns, and particularly habitualized patterns of dislike and ill will. This is what it's taking us away from. Now, those habitualized patterns might not even be just directed to external things. They're often directed towards ourselves. One thing that Eastern teachers, when they first started arriving in the West and teaching in the West, were actually horrified by, was how much, actually, Western people didn't seem to like themselves. Um, When I was practicing this in the East, when I was doing these practices in the East, the development of friendliness towards yourself was considered to be a very small part of the exercise. It was taken for granted that you would like yourself. When these teachers first started arriving in Europe and America and places, they suddenly came across this overwhelming sense of most Western people are not terribly friendly towards themselves. We have these wonderful terms, which of course are almost totally absent in Asian languages, such as inner critic. Well, I have Asian friends, particularly living in Tibetan society and other places in Sri Lanka, places I've lived, I have Asian friends who never stop telling me how good they are at certain things. Um, But not in an arrogant way, much more in a way that is actually friendly and owning up to what what they're actually good at, what they appreciated about themselves. I think we in the West find it very, very difficult to generate that attitude, that attitude of mind, that basic act of friendliness. Now, if we're looking at this word, I won't do very much of you with you this weekend of this kind of looking at the etymology of a word, but the word metta is very interesting in Pali. It's related to a Sanskrit word, which is maitre, which means to befriend. It's derived from a Sanskrit Pali root, which actually indicates to befriend something. Uh, its most basic meaning is to grow fat. It's the idea of growing fat with friendliness. <laughs> Plumping out uh, with the sort of express, expressive, and this is how I would really translate this term, a boundless friendliness. A friendliness that's directed, you know, um, towards everything and towards oneself. So it's all-encompassing. So when you take the word metta rather than loving-kindness, we get boundless friendliness. An expansive way of being in the world. And this is an inclination of the mind. Now, one thing the Buddha very, very clearly said, and I'll talk about this much more tomorrow evening, but one thing that the Buddha really emphasized was, is what we habitually incline our minds to becomes the shape of our minds. And what becomes the shape of our minds becomes our life. So, if we habitually incline our minds towards or incline our minds towards ill will, towards aversion, towards dislike, then in a sense that becomes eventually the way that we live our lives. We live our lives in irritability and aversion, dislike. And the question that arises in this, if 
we see that, and we perhaps see the onset of some of those tendencies, is do we want to live like that? Is there a better way that we can live in this world, um, a more open way? And the Buddha is suggesting there is. He is suggesting that it's this basic attitude of friendliness that we can bring into the world and develop, and that, when we incline our minds enough in this way, that too will become your life. And it's a question we have to ask ourselves because I think when we are habitualized in certain ways of thinking, ways of being, then that seems very natural and it seems often very difficult to break. And this can seem very artificial, the inclining of our minds towards something such as friendliness and kindness. But the Buddha is really offering us, in some sense, a hope that we, if we persist and we have patience and we engage in this, and by the way, there's no promissory note you'll go out bringing brimming with friendliness by the end of this retreat. Um, this is a basic introduction to the practice. But if we do this persistently enough and we incline our minds in this way, replacing those thoughts of hatred and dislike and aversion and all of the things that are so readily familiar to us, we start to replace this with acts of friendliness, just simple acts towards ourselves of friendliness. This will change our lives. This is the Buddha's promissory note, that it can change the whole shape of the way that we live in this world. So... We're changing, in changing our minds in some ways, we change the world. Now, the word that the Buddha uses, whenever he uses the word world, he doesn't mean simply the stuff out there. He really doesn't. When he talks about world, he is talking about the world that is created by our minds. How we imprint. You know, the events of the world, the things of the world, the people who populate our world, how we imprint them with our mental thoughts, with our mental attitudes. Ones of, for example, desire, ones of aversion, these are the most familiar. These attitudes that we bring all too readily creates a world which is desiring and aversive. And He's saying that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live in this way. We don't have to live in thrall to simply almost this push-pull mechanism of desire and aversion. We can have freedom from desire and aversion. And this is, in a sense, the freedom that the Buddha particularly emphasizes. He doesn't emphasize a freedom to, you know, a freedom to do whatever we want what he emphasizes is a freedom from the shackles of habitualized patterns of mind, which we keep recycling. I've often said in this room that the human mind is the perfectly organic recycling mechanism. The same old junk keeps going round and round and round, uh, and it keeps coming up again and again and again. And any of you who have been on long retreats before will know this it becomes very repetitive, what we see. If you haven't been on this, well, perhaps you'll be in for a surprise. 
you know, of just how much the same sort of stuff comes up again and again and again. And to come back to the theme, the reason I'm saying is because we often, for example, can then take aversion to the aversion. You know, we see aversive tendencies coming up again and again in our minds, and then we almost compound it by then taking a negative attitude towards the aversion. So not only have I now got aversion towards other things, I've got aversion to the aversion. Um, as you can see, we can get involved in a very, very nice feedback loop here. I've just keep feeding our aversions here. Now to break this cycle, to break this whole pattern of our mind, um, and it is a cycle... This is indicated by a lovely word that's used in the tradition. It talks about two things, one of, one of which you'll probably have heard of, nirvana, but it will also talk about the other side of the coin, which is sangsara. Um, actually, the Western world made a rock band out of one and a perfume out of the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, sangsara, <laughs> actually, as a, as a term, literally is derived again from a root in the original language, which means to go round in circles. It indicates a circularity of experience, a circularity of thinking um, that we inhabit. So we keep on revisiting the same stuff again and again and again and again and keep on doing the same stuff again and again and again. So this is about breaking that cycle, breaking these chains, unbinding from habitualized patterns. When we start to think of Nirvana, which is this big, big term and gets wholly blown up out of all proportion, even within Buddhist traditions, the word nirvana really just means to unbind. It means to unbind from habitualized patterns of behavior. One way of beginning to engage in that unbinding is starting to cultivate a soil of friendliness, a foundation of the world, which is based on friendliness and kindness. Just a final couple of words here, um, and we'll just do a short practice this evening just to finish off the evening and then start properly in the morning, is that this soil of friendliness which we're cultivating, and I deliberately use the word soil because everything else that is positive grows out of that soil. Everything that we see, when this particular tradition, this particular path, speaks for very much, for example, about the virtues of something called karuna, compassion. Yeah. Which actually, again, is not an entirely good translation, not an entirely satisfactory translation of this. It merely really means a sort of outgoing kindliness. Again, not something separate from metta, becomes, if you like, the delivery of metta, the delivery of that friendliness. It speaks about joy um, as also arising out of this. Yeah. A joyfulness and a joy in the joy of others as well. A simple way of appreciating both our fortune and the fortune of others. And eventually, of course, out of this soil, out of these virtues also grows something which is in many senses the desideratum of this path which is known as upekka, which is actually a form of equanimity, 
of a form of balance, of being able to live our lives balanced, not being thrown about and buffeted by the winds of fortune, the good and the bad, as they arise in our life, usually propel us in one direction and then into another direction, and equanimity is an engaged, balanced attitude towards life where I'm not being constantly tossed around like a small boat on an ocean. All of these arise out of friendliness. And the friendliness really starts at home. And this is where we begin, um, particularly tomorrow morning. It begins at home because it begins by turning our attention towards ourselves and developing and cultivating, inclining our minds towards this friendlier attitude, towards, if you like, our own foibles, our own imperfections in life. This is not about some idealized perfection that I can conjure up. It's actually the act of friendliness is turning towards, initially, our own imperfections. Our lack of ability, for example, to steady the mind, to hold the mind on even such a simple object as just to watch the breath. A Sri Lanka friend of mine once said, and I'd actually like this written large sometimes in meditation halls, he actually said to me once, he said, when I look at Western people doing meditation, they make their lives even more miserable. And I think what he meant by that was there was a quest for this idealized perfection. We're not terribly good, and I don't want to divide too much East and West, because it's becoming much more globalized now, but we're not terribly good in the West at holding imperfection. We like to be perfect at things pretty quickly, actually. And meditation is not something one gets good at quickly. If uh, even I understand what the word being good at it would mean here. It's a path of cultivation. It's a path of being able to steady the mind, clarify the mind, be able to see what is going on, to be able to look with interest and curiosity at your own processes as what is actually there for you. In our embodied existence, Again, with all its problems and all its imperfections, with its pains, um, and sometimes its beauty as well. So to turn this kindly eye towards us, towards ourselves in this embodied form, is the first basic act of, I think, any meditative procedure, um, let alone mindfulness. It's this act of being able to turn towards, just this very simple act of being able to turn towards rather than to dash away from our thought processes and the difficulty sometimes of those thought processes and what arises for us in those. So that very act, that just simple act of moving towards and standing close to, rather than rushing away from, that is our first act of kindness. That is our first act of learning to befriend ourselves. 
And once we've learned to befriend ourselves, then it becomes far easier to befriend others. And this is not about, I must emphasize this at this very, very early stage, this is not having to like what people do. It's not even actually having to like the person to be friendly towards them. So again, this is not about idealization. But it's to take a basic friendly stance towards that person in their imperfections as we've taken towards ourselves in our own imperfections and our own difficulties, our own ways of screwing up every so often. We see others doing it, we see ourselves doing it. And so it becomes more of a harmonization. And friendliness is actually living that harmony. Much more tomorrow. (laughs) What we'll do this evening is just do a very simple meditation practice just to finish the evening, just of focusing on the breath. So let's take our seat. And the first thing to do is to get as comfortable as you can. Please don't feel ashamed to have to go to a chair if you're experiencing difficulty sitting on the floor. Again, we can get terribly idealistic about this, that meditation is to be done sitting on the floor. No, it isn't. There's no virtue to being in pain. So try and get as comfortable as you can so that you don't have to move around so often as we sit. And as we sit and we take, literally take our seat, then we pay some attention to our posture. We make sure as much as we can that the body is relaxed. If you wish, you can inhale and exhale deeply a number of times just to relax the body. To make sure that the spine is straight. Whether you're sitting on a chair, sitting on one of these meditation stools that I'm sitting on, or whether you're just sitting cross-legged on a cushion. Keeping the spine straight is absolutely important. And making sure that the, the head is not tensed, the neck is not tight, And that the hands are in a comfortable position. You can either have one hand folded into another, or them resting on your thighs or knees. And what we're doing here is we're making an intentional stance with the body. purpose of what we're engaging in on one aspect of it is to stay alert attentive and of course awake so that we can be witnesses to what we discover particularly when our minds drift off from the object of our breath 
And as we sit with this embodied intention to stay awake and alert and attentive, then we will notice certain phenomena that are associated with that embodiment. We will all notice, for example, the pressure of our buttocks on our seats and our cushions. We can notice the touch of clothing on our bodies. might be aware of, uh, for example, one hand resting in another, the warmth of that, the feeling of our hands resting on our thighs or our knees, and the coolness or the warmth of the air as it touches our exposed areas of skin. So initially we just sit in some senses just experiencing the phenomena of our embodiment. And very noticeably, of course, as we sit in this way, we'll be aware that we are breathing. That the breath is coming and going. That our chests are expanding and contracting. The abdomen is rising and falling. We perhaps experience it at the nose, the back of the throat. But as we sit in whichever way that we're experiencing this, we become aware that this body sitting here is breathing. And that breath comes and goes. And it's coming and going has very little to do with us. I can control it. But mostly it's just coming and going, coming and going. Short breaths and long breaths. So we sit sensing our body breathing, or perhaps to put it another way, our body being breathed.
hand at some point, we might want to just narrow the focus a little bit from this general sense of the body breathing to experiencing where we feel that breath most strongly. Is it in the movement of the ribcage? The movement of the abdomen? Or is it the first touch of the air at the nose where we experience that brief moment of coolness in the nostrils? When you find out where you're experiencing the breath most strongly, then let your attention rest there. When you're letting your attention rest, Try not to introduce any elements of force, of moving the mind, tensing the mind, to try and hold yourself rigidly at that point. This is a gentle but firm maintenance of attention at your chosen spot. Just holding your attention, your mind there for as long as is possible without introducing any force. And at some point we will find that Our attention has drifted. This usually occurs sooner rather than later. And always to bear in mind that this is not a problem. The mind drifts away, this is not a problem. I can't emphasize this enough. When we found that it's drifted, Note where your mind has gone. Acknowledge it. In acknowledging, we befriend. We don't create monsters, we don't create demons. And once we've acknowledged, if it's just thinking or planning, worrying, anxiety, emotions, whatever it is, once we've acknowledged, then we can gently, with kindness, with friendliness, bring our minds back to the movement of the breath.
And whenever our minds move away, we do exactly the same thing. We acknowledge. We befriend, if we can, what is there. And gently, with kindness, return ourselves to the breath. And doing this as many times as we have to. The mind drifting is not a sign of failure. It's simply how the mind operates. So we acknowledge, befriend, and return it as many times as we have to.